it's beginning to feel like this is this is something that's got the potential to dominate the regulatory agenda. You know, I do wonder a little bit where it leaves um, the FCA in terms of all the things that it did, all the special measures it undertook during the pandemic, because from where I sit, it almost looks like more people are in more need now than they were when they were being furloughed. Feels very much like the FCA will be um, again responding to what happens externally. Hi and welcome to Grant Thornton's Risk and Regulation Unravel podcast. My name is David Moy and I'm joined by my colleague Gavin Stewart. Say hello Gavin. Hi David, hello everyone. Um, this is the podcast where we review the month's events in financial services regulation. Uh, sometimes that means the regulators setting the news, setting the agenda, and sometimes that means the regulator responding to the news. And I think uh, recording this in, in late March uh, 2022, this uh, this podcast is more, more about the latter than the former. Um, obviously, Gavin, we are a month into, roughly a month into... Uh, uh, the invasion of Ukraine. Um, the regulator has uh, the regulators uh, have uh, responded to that initially, very much on the focus being on reminding firms of their obligations in relation to to sanctions. And uh, um, uh, if you were to look at the FCA's uh, website, they've got a web page up um, that uh, that addresses the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I think that's, that's what they actually call it. Uh, that webpage, um, and 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 that was fine and sensible. But it's interesting to see just just looking at that webpage today that it's beginning to uh, address what we might consider some of the sort of second order consequences of the events in Russia. So we've gone from it talking about sanctions and and latterly operational resilience into um, things like the the effect of uh, disinvestment from Russia and the, and the and the closure of Russian markets to investment funds. Um, we've got a consultation, uh, there's signposting on, on the use of side pockets actually in, in UK retail funds, which would allow retail funds with a significant Russian component, enough of a Russian component to, to mean that they've had to close, essentially suspend operations to, to put those investments into a, into a side pocket and allow investors to continue to access their, 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 um, their savings, etc. In, the, in, the, in the, you know, the remainder, the larger part of the fund. Which is probably a you know a sensible, act, but but definitely a um, a unique step they're taking, um, and the Chancellor has called on firms to divest in, in, in from from Russia, and the FCA is obviously encouraging investment managers to cease cease, cease and desist. Um, what are your thoughts? I mean, what's what, what's life going to be like within the regulators at the moment, trying to uh, trying to respond to to, the, to those secondary effects? So it was always, I think, going to be an expanding story. I mean, we talked about this, you know, I posted on this earlier in the month. Um, and, and I think we're seeing that, I, I, you know, we've had at least two, is it three rounds of sanctions. There's obviously the market stuff you're talking about as well. I think internally, I suspect the FCA is looking to um, expand its capacity to probe and delve into exactly what the ramifications of all this are. Uh, oddly enough, in regulatory terms, a month can be quite a long time because you can see in this case what direction things are going. And so actually it's possible to prepare and be slightly ahead of the curve, a little bit more than it is in some other situations um, that we've talked about, you know, obviously the pandemic, and, mm. but, but there are other things too. So, so I, think, I think that's all quite interesting and I think it'll be the interesting thing for me would be how far that kind of web of 
uh, let's call it regulatory curiosity expands. Uh, I mean, I suspect you know every major bank and others with Russian links will be um, will have been asked questions yes. about exactly where they sit and what yes. their what their actual state of play is. Uh, and obviously, we've seen things like you know parliamentary privilege used to to kind of name various law firms and various firms have withdrawn from Russia and made those sorts mm-hmm. of decisions. So I think all that all that kind of reverberates around regulation. Uh, and the question is where they draw the lines and how those lines expand depending on how long the conflict goes on. Yes, I mean, it's certainly true you know, during um, the early part, well, during the early to middle part of, of, of COVID, uh, since it went on so long, um, you know, there was, a, there was a fairly continuous stream of questions going out to, to firms regarding their level of preparedness, the impact on the firm, the impact on the customer, you know, looking, looking, at, looking at the topic through various various lenses. I know I know some firms find it quite burdensome actually <laughs> responding to responding to that, that, that degree of uh, um, uh, questioning and challenge. I, I from what you're saying that that's that this has the potential to be something similar in terms of different different lines of inquiry, different lines of um, questioning developing over time. Yes, and I think the you know the, the impact of sanctions will obviously you know is already quite broad and deep and continuing and we've you know we've spoken about kind of the possibility of you know ruble defaulting yeah. and, and so yeah. on and, and how that impacts global markets over time uh, again de- depending on you know the developments on the ground I, I think will you know is potentially quite profound and reshapes quite a lot of things do you think um, you mentioned the ruble default Let, let's assume it's more possible than not that uh, the either the Russian government or indeed Russian businesses default on some of their non ruble exposures uh, dollar borrowing, etc. Um, do you think that's keeping people at the Bank of England up awake at night, or is this? I mean, it's not. It wouldn't be the first default for, for, from the Russian. No, government. I mean, I, I was at the. I was working at the bank when long-term credit management mm. um, in 1998, and actually, there was. I suspect everything was much more entwined then for all sorts of for all sorts of reasons. Uh, this time, I suspect they they the bank will have thought it through fairly well in advance and that it's as far as these things can ever be relatively straightforward yeah. uh, certainly compared to what it was like 25 years ago or whatever yeah so we're not we, we don't think it's a situation that would trigger you know rapid regulatory change and to you know, try and head off a crisis in the in the banking system or anything of that, of that, of that significance. I, I've seen nothing that indicates no no okay very good um, so uh, a related, albeit a much broader story, is is the cost of living. Broader because of the number of influences on it. The cost of living crisis, as I think we're now all allowed to, to call it. I saw, I saw the latest inflation figures, the top six percent in the UK. I people are talking about ten percent being a realistic possibility when you factor in energy price and food price increases. Uh, even I read this morning, price of my fish and chips is going to go up apparently because the uh, the amount of white fish that, that, that are exported by Russia. Who knew? Um, but your body's a temple, David. <laughs> <laughs> My body's a temple into which battered fish make a frequent appearance. Um, we are, we're recording this just before uh, the Chancellor presents his mini-budget, uh, so I don't know what he will say or do to uh, try and relieve um, the pressures of the cost of living increases. Um, but 
Uh, it's beginning to feel like this is this is something that's got the potential to dominate the regulatory agenda, a bit like COVID did to some degree. But is this this could be even more widespread, couldn't it, in terms of implications? I mean, it's a slight question of where where do you start on this? Um, I think you know we've always thought it would be very rocky coming out of the pandemic, uh, and what's happened to energy prices, what's happened to supply chains generally, uh, the consequences of the war in Ukraine in terms of, I keep hearing people talking about the commodities markets generally mm. being yes. quite tight because of the kind of rare metals and so on yes. that are involved. Uh, I think there's what, some very high percentage of grain comes from Ukraine and Russia. I've seen 30 or 40%, yes. In terms of world production. <laughs> yeah. So there's, there's a lot of things there. Um, and then obviously there's the tax rises. So there's the, you know, the national insurance uh, hike in particular. Uh, and, you know, I do wonder a little bit where it leaves um, the FCA in terms of all the things that it did, all the special measures it undertook during the pandemic, because from where I sit, it almost looks like more people are in more need now than they were when they were being furloughed, yes. potentially. Yes. So, yes. so I think that's quite interesting. And then I think the other thing is, uh, as I understand it from uh, watching Lord Agnew's star appearance at the TSC and then at, and then at the Bay's um, select committee as well, the whole issue of kind of bounce back loans and how many of them were fraudulent and so on it isn't going to go away anytime soon. No, that's an area where political embarrassment could lead to quite a lot of extra work being done, I, I would imagine. Yes, you could, you could definitely see that happening. Um, yeah, it's interesting. You, you're right. I mean, uh, you know, the way the the pandemic played out in terms of relatively low numbers of job losses, heavily heavily cushioned by furlough payments, you know, the the financial difficulty dimension did probably didn't arise to the extent that that the the, the regulators were concerned it would. Um, but now we've got a cost of living increase. You know, ten percent inflation. That's that's for those for those at the bottom of the uh, of the of the income spectrum. That's a whopper. Because uh, it'll be a much greater percentage, almost certainly, for them at the individual level. I noticed, um, well, I saw a speech uh, by the FCA's interim director of retail lending, Brian Court. Yeah. So he was presenting um, on um, to the to the lending sector, from the trade bodies, I think. Um, but he was talking about uh, you know, heavy emphasis for the regulator on uh, the. the Regulated lenders recognise vulnerability and, and respond appropriately to vulnerability and work constructively with borrowers in financial difficulty. Which is not these are not new concepts, but I think he was clearly taking a moment to, to emphasise those as uh, as particularly high on the agenda for the for the upcoming period. So maybe maybe that's it, rather than sort of uh, you know the, the the COVID style rollovers and deferrals. We we we, we see much more of a focus on um, uh, recognising vulnerability. I mean, I think they'll be reluctant to go back to that, but but I also think that the pressures are arguably greater now mm. than they were two years ago. Um, I wonder also. I've never been quite convinced that the FCA's had a a proper picture, a vision of what uh, what they want the credit sector to look like. Uh, what they've come up with is has either been you know, quite narrowly focused on, you know, high cost short term credit or it's been quite broad and sort of I can put this as sort of a a policy framework rather than a real life one. 
uh, that imagines rational man doing X, Y, and Z. Yes, rational person. So I, I, I think there'll be real. I think it'd be really interesting to see how that unravels. And I saw today that um, NatWest are going to launch a buy now, pay later. Oh, um, are they? Uh, you know, option in okay. the summer. So, so again, that opens up more. It's going mainstream then. Yes. Yeah. You know, and there's you know there's there's pluses and minuses to all this, um, but but it's just you know understanding where they really fit into the regulatory picture. And I know BNPL is going to be regulated, but we're probably still eighteen months away from that uh, in the real world. So you know it's it it's it feels very much like the FCA will be um, again responding to yeah. what happens externally without necessarily having a clear picture of, of, of where it wants to end up. Yes. Well, I've got a couple of other uh, was external or quasi-external events that, that might um, be changing the regulator's uh, agenda. Uh, one would be the, uh, the the strike vote. We mentioned that previously, the FCA, they had the sort of indicative vote in their union, and, and now, now there is, uh, they, they're going to have a formal vote. For, uh, it's, it's open now. Uh, yes, I think it closes on April the 11th. Yeah, so like two weeks from Tuesday, I think. Um, so uh, that's, uh, in principle, I know, I don't know, you know, for strike action, that there are various rules. It's, you, know, you have to get a majority of, you know, more than 50% of the members need to vote. I mean, there are various, it, 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 it's, it's not, it's, 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 there is a, some complexity around the voting system. But yeah, that could create the basis for a, um, a, a strike to be taken. I know the, you know, a, a revised pay offer was communicated. Is my understanding. It doesn't seem to have slowed the momentum down on the on the on the strike vote, though. No, it doesn't seem to have gone well. Um, I, I mean, it's it's hard to tell, isn't it? Because you don't know. You, you don't know until we, we we get a sense of of how that vote's gone. But but it is hard to overstate how unusual it is for this to be happening at all. Um, I mean, the twenty seven years I worked in regulation, no one ever remotely talked about any sort of industrial action. So to be having a formal vote, and from what I hear, hundreds of people have been joining the union in yeah, the last few months. It's been reported, several hundreds, yes. Yeah. So, 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 you know, something's gone wrong, and without going to the, into the kind of, you know, the, the rights and wrongs of it, uh, it's just really unfortunate. I mean, it's a bad position to be in at any time, let alone now. Yes, uh, well, we won't repeat the conversation we had in the last, last podcast. We were speculating on just what happens, you know, if the regulator or a decent chunk of the regulator staff go on strike. What, what, what does that do to priorities? Are there emergency measures that can be taken to keep the keep the lights on, etc.? So uh, go back to the previous podcast if, if, you, if you'd like to hear our discussion on, on that. But yeah, we were, in, we were in unknown territory at every level here. Yeah. Um, uh, I mentioned one of the... These are things driving driving the regulator's agenda or ability to to, to to set its agenda potentially. But but one of the things, and I know you you were you were blogging on this, um, the American move, the executive order Joe Biden signed around. Um, well, it's, it's more like getting a grip of crypto, isn't it? I mean, it's it's it's, it's de- regulatory agencies develop a plan for a plan to 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 you know de-risk and put put this put this whole sector crypto asset sector into a into a, um, a better place, I guess a slightly more, you know, controlled and oversighted place. Um, interesting, I saw the, uh, initially when the, the executive order was signed, Bitcoin shot up and then it shot down again. So I thought, you know, that's the same as, same as ever really. Um, 
but the, the so whilst it's light on specifics in terms of you know it's a plan plan, plan for a plan, it's, it's setting quite an aggressive time scale. I th- my yes, understanding, six yeah. months. Yeah, right. which is that will be incredibly rapid um, piece of regulation. It's also emphasising or, or certainly featuring you know the intention to try and cooperate with other international. Well, their ally is, I think, is the phrase that the executive order uses. But I'm assuming the UK, UK is in there. So, I mean, one, one of one of the uh, one of the criticisms, uh, justifiably probably, of, of the crypto regulation in, uh, that goes on in the UK is incredibly piecemeal. I mean, it's it's there obviously plans to 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 bring it within the more so within the remit of the Financial Conduct Authority. They're currently some well publicised. Uh, well, Challenges for for the sector in in terms of uh, getting getting authorization uh, for AML um, purposes. Um, I actually I didn't know, yeah, the advertising states standards agency has knocked out according to a press release. I saw fifty warning notices to crypto firms about the the uh, their adverts, which is which is fine. I mean, well done ASA, but it, uh, it just reminds you that the FCA can't do that. Actually, they haven't got the remit to to make that kind of. You know, to criticise financial promotions in that in in that sector as yet. Um, so uh, clearly, a, a patchwork and a, a challenging environment already for the FCA in relation to crypto. Um, yeah, I presume this American initiative is going to force the pace a bit potentially. You would imagine. I mean, I've got friends who know far more about this than I do who say that it's an absolutely monstrous RFP, and it's clearly a real attempt to see the thing in the round and get your arms around it and come up with. You know some solid proposals across the board as to how to how to regulate digital assets and again yeah. that's drawn quite broadly and it's hard to avoid the contrast with what's happened happening in the uk yeah. uh you know we talked about the fca not really having it in its its perimeter report to the government last autumn mm-hmm. uh and all the as you say all the all the things that have happened since are are, are quite piecemeal. It's quite striking, also. I think how when the Americans decide to do something, <laughs> they, they really, you know, it's it's they're really all in. Uh, and I think there's there's probably something cultural there. I've also read some interesting stuff about whether digital assets, crypto, needs its own sort of bespoke regulator, given how Ooh. different everything is. Um, I, I guess we'll have to wait and see. I, I, I do worry that. The FCA becomes a bit of a skip for ever, for the next thing that comes along. <laughs> I mean, it's something that happened to the FSA in yes, the, in the yes. 2000s, and we know how that ended. So there's something about having the right resources and expertise to deal with all the things that you're responsible for. And I think we're we're still a, I'm not saying it's not possible, and there are lots of risks to dividing divvying things up between different regulators. Yeah. But I think we're a long way from where we're going to need to be in like. Let's say five years. Yes, you, yes, you've got to think it's going to be a very fast-moving situation. I, I mean, I, you want, want to take you know, the, the reaction of the crypto industry, and that's a pretty broad thing to say. Uh, you can describe it as a, a single industry, but there's been, relatively speaking, I think, quite a lot of positive comment on the the American initiative because it's seen as, on balance, being more supportive than not. So it didn't seem to be an attempt to close down, as you say, close down it's the nascent industry. It seems to be an attempt to. To um, give it some give it some structure that will give it more credibility. I mean, it's also also encourages the Federal Reserve to 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 explore, you know, a, a federal <laughs> cryptocurrency, um, which might be a precursor for Bitcoin. We'll see. Um, 
Yeah, so 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 it doesn't feel to me like it's a war on crypto, but it is it is going to get it more firmly into the purview of mainstream regulators. You would think certainly that's that's the uh, well, that seems to be where the US is heading. Um, uh, in other news, the I, well, I know you, well, while most of us are sitting at home watching TikTok videos, you you, you watch the Treasury Select Committee, don't you? Kinda... Yes, many happy hours. <laughs> <laughs> you you, uh, you mentioned you mentioned uh, you mentioned one of the hearings earlier, but uh, is, there, is there anything else you've seen going on there that this month that um, that might have ramifications? Because they're obviously the ones that tend to turn the screws on the regulators to to get things done. Yeah, so I mean, I think it's worth watching because it's for a number of reasons. First of all, the the TSC will have an enhanced um, role in the future regulatory framework, mm -hmm. and so you know the the tone of the different sessions was really quite different you know really quite distinct um uh there was a session on the frf where they had the pra and the fca uh and you know it was it was clear from that that they're quite keen on the competitiveness angle although the pra sees some start sees some downsides um that the FCA isn't keen on having anything to do with financial inclusion mm. in the bill, which was the subject of another session um, where various sort of people from the consumer side, um, uh, notably Martin Kopak, who's director of Fair by Design, who's campaigned on this for a long time, talked about financial inclusion and, um, you know, what the need for it is and the poverty premium and, and so on. And I actually find that quite persuasive. Mm. I am struck by a kind of a, a, a potential new regulatory framework that says ESG and competitiveness are more important than financial crime and financial inclusion. So the first two get included, the second two don't. Yeah. And I think that says something about the overall framework that I'm not entirely sure is healthy. Um, and then the, the Lord Agnew session was, was really interesting because it was two hours just talking to one person, which you hardly ever see. So it was a very, a, a much more in-depth probe into what was actually happening. It's like the Joe Rogan show. Possibly. Um, and, when, and when you saw it alongside the, the session he did with Bayes the following week, where they also had the um, British Business Bank um, by the way, he thought their board should resign, um, <laughs> and, and representatives of the, of the big of the big lenders. Yes, it was really interesting how he said he didn't know what the fraud incidents would be, but he he'd hurt because he hadn't didn't have the data, which is one of his complaints. But he thought it might be you know between ten and twenty five percent on the basis of what he'd heard. The British Business Bank said between seven and ten. The banks themselves said sort of one to two. So the MPs on the base committee were sort of left saying, "Not all of you can you be can't right." You can't be right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, so I do think that will play out quite interestingly. Yes, it, I, I, and I'm, possibly painfully. I, 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 I tend to agree with you on, on the financial inclusion point in terms of a, a regulatory um, objective, or obviously not an objective as it stands under the future regulatory framework. Um, it's funny how time moves on. I, you know, I think I think if, if 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 it was three years ago, four years ago, when financial inclusion was something that got talked about a lot, then it would be. But you know, now we're about net zero, so that gets in. Um, I, and I just wonder whether 
you know, really bruising cost of living crisis and, and a lot of fallout from that might suddenly make financial inclusion back into the agenda. Um, and I wouldn't be, you know, disappointed to see it, to see it there, there at all. And, and financial crime similarly. Yes, yes, well, yes, the agenda. That, that's, that's, yes, that's right. If, uh, if, if, you know, given, <laughs> given the events of the last month, you know, the amount of effort we're going into sanctions and, um, it's, it's, there's a bit of a segue there. I mean, I mentioned earlier the speech by um, the director of retail lending. Um, he talked about vulnerability and things, but he, but also he also talked about the consumer duty, and um, uh, I, I mean, the, clearly that's a massive regulatory development. We're between you know, consultation paper and final rules here, so there's a, there's a lot of um, a lot to play for still necessarily in, in, in the detail, but. Um, I know we know from you know working with with clients that um, it is possible to interpret the drafts, the consultation in in a number of different ways, and, and so, so you know one of the biggest areas of divergence potentially is well, good outcome. Okay, we've got a duty to deliver a good outcome. What what is good? I mean, I I'd rather flippantly say you know is good meh, or is good absolutely outstanding, you know, that kind of average to to fantastic spectrum and. Uh, and, and I said, and, and we, you know, you can see what the clients and, and, and under, under the same set of rules, you could justify a different answer to that, um, and which I think actually just down the track, and I know you've mentioned this before, Kevin, this is going to be a really, really challenging piece of rulemaking for supervisors to supervise, <laughs> just in terms of the degree of uh, judgment involved and the, and, and the number of firms that potentially we go in different directions and different interpretations for different supervisors. But but one of the things in, in that speech I, I, I was referencing was, um, let me get this right, he was talking about, you know, uh, this is not, uh, they don't want to see affordability standards weakened, okay, so this is not about making it any easier to lend. They want lenders to give customers, this is it, the outcomes they need, <laughs> which, which is not necessarily the outcome they want. <laughs> Nor is it an outcome the, the the customer actually considers to be a good outcome. It's the outcome they need, um, and, and I, you know, it's, it's, it, this is not particularly want to spend any time discussing. But I just it, it just it just brought home to me, you know, depending on the situation, depending on who's talking, you could get quite a different take on what good outcome means um, for any you know any financial services journey. No, completely, and I agree with you on the implementation challenge. I, I was. Um, looking back and comparing it to um, when treating customers fairly was rolled out and there was a kind of an, an inbuilt inevitability about the, the sort of the, the slight confusion that resulted because you had a massive implementation program which was run from retail themes department you had supervision implementing it across all the firms and then you had ppi which was just mushrooming as an issue um, and essentially took over to some degree the, the TCF agenda. And so you had these three sources of truth in effect competing with each other, not necessarily meaning to to start with, but actually it became quite confusing quite quickly, certainly on the inside. Yes. Uh, I remember someone getting someone to draw me a sort of Venn diagram of it um, to kind of explain what was going on. Uh, and I do think there's there's given the scale and complexity of the consumer duty and and I think supervisors will simplify and tailor the rollout to their sector and the problems they face and I could easily see something similar developing 
in kind of 18 months yes. time say six months into um the rollout yes yeah, so what good is or call it good or good in this set of consumers mm. Mm. yes okay well watch this space well we will be reporting on the consumers you see much more as we as we go on obviously uh, uh, there was another actually just just to illustrate Another area of regulatory change, actually, uh, this is narrow in a sense, it doesn't apply to as many firms, it's the investment firm prudential rules. I'm working with a lot of investment firms, we are trying to implement the um, liquidity requirements. So it's one of the big changes in these new rules applying to Mifid investment firms is um, that they need to assess, each firm needs to assess and ring fence a certain amount of liquid resources. Okay, so this is, this is a you know, cash that you can't use for the purpose, it needs to be available f- to sustain a business. Um, and the, the you can you can you can and uh, we are with different looking looking at those rules coming up with uh, processes for assessing that liquidity requirement which I think um, meet the letter of the rules but because of certain assumptions you might make along the way I mean the, the same firm you can come up with a you know that, that requirement being ten million pounds and then without without doing anything that on the face of it is non-compliant you can you can turn that number to 200 million pounds i mean like a massive massive range so and and you know ultimately the fca again they're going to get a lot more data um once uh, uh, ultimately from firms in this area so i think supervisors are going to see massive range <laughs> of outcomes and just the supervisory challenge of working out a what good looks like and b you know, driving that into them, driving back into into the firms is going to be is going to be uh, well a, a whopper. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, and it's still not a world where there are a lot of um, prudential regulators, supervisors, no, no. the FCA. You know, it's still a sort of minority sport, uh, a bit. So I think it'll be stretched. Well, I, and one of the things that concerns me a bit. I'm sorry, this is not an investment firm deep dive, is it? But is that. Um, the more prudent, either the, the firms that are coming up with a bigger number, a bigger liquidity, are the other ones they've got lots of cash, so they're quite happy to be air quotes here prudent. Look how prudent we've been in our. Um, whereas the firms that, that haven't got as much cash are going to tend to try and you know finesse things to come up with a lower number. Um, so where you know if the FCA is going to choose one end of that spectrum over the other, it could be <laughs> majorly problematic. Certainly if they get if they go prudent. Then there's going to be a lot of firms that are that are, that are really stretched. Anyway, um, other other news. Uh, um, it's, well, World Events is um, making it interesting in, in its own way for ESG investing. Um, and I, I'll be reading some some quite interesting dialogue about the because so the, the uh, there is the um, uh, sustainable finance disclosures regime that the EU has introduced, for instance, and there due to produce a taxonomy of you know these are the things that, that constitute um, uh, constitutes uh, um, sustainable types of investment and I think there's already been some some um, angst and because they've included nuclear and natural gas in in, in, in the in the initial take and then and they're now discussing whether to include defense contractors in that so uh, I just it's, it, 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 this is this is not one to be drawing any sort of sweeping conclusions on, but it just it just it just makes me realise that you know the concept of sustainable <laughs> is probably something that in its own way is going to be driven by political events. Yes, I think so. I, I mean, I think the what I think it will sharpen is the challenge of coming up with a uh, an agreed taxonomy. And it may, you know, irrespective almost of what it includes, 
uh, and then a, a sort of a, a more of a drive for um, investment firms, asset managers, and so on to uh, ex and for banks to explain where they are against that and what sort of progress they want to make. I mean, for me, it's less important if you like what's what's in the taxonomy in the, than it is that we have an agreed one and people because this is always going to be iterative and people then move um, and everyone kind of plays their part uh, and I think in an odd sort of way what's happening at the moment potentially encourages that because I think if I was if I was sitting in a regular in a major regulator I think actually we need to sort this we need agreement on this so that people are playing by the same rules yes yeah yeah I know that and that's that's the idea behind the taxonomy isn't it it's a uh... It's just it's an interesting thing to watch as you know with fossil fuel extractors and defense contractors potentially being the most profitable companies in the world over, over the next two or three years it's uh, you know, what does that do to investment decision making um uh we won't have time today i don't think and, and actually one i think we can defer to next time um the national order office criticized uh well i guess the, the regulatory framework uh and how it failed the british steel pension scheme members pension transfer issues um I, that, that's worth talking about i think but we, we also are expecting quite shortly uh, a consultation from the fca on a in, industry-wide or uh, 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 redress scheme to to address bsps issues so maybe we can uh in our next podcast assuming that consultation is out we can we can talk talk about both in the round both uh, both the criticism and and what the FCA are now saying should happen. Um, what I wanted to end with, though, uh, we're expecting the FCA business plan now. Uh, we are. Circa Ho 7th of April, maybe. Hopefully, that. yeah, hopefully then. Um, and, and thus, actually, we're saying probably our next podcast, then we'll be, we'll be uh, doing a quite an extensive review of that. But if I can put you on the spot, Gavin, anything you think you should, we should be looking out for? Um, so I'm, I'm writing... A over the last couple of days, I've written a couple of blogs on this. I, I think, I think, you know, given we are at the moment, that the thing to look for is how big the funding envelope is. So, you know, there's a lot going on. There are clear pressures within the system, both post, both post COVID and since. Um, there's also the transformation stuff going on. How do they pay it, pay for it? Is it a bigger envelope? Um, if so, by how much? Or is it? broadly the same plus inflation whatever that is because i've never had to deal with that before <laughs> uh, so, so i think if there's yeah, one headline one. thing it, it would be are, are they are they raising fees to give themselves materially more resources okay that's a good one to look at yes i guess a headline that will be a good starting point we uh, we will return uh, next month when we will be covering that i hope and as always, I would ask if you haven't already to like and subscribe to this podcast. Um, if you also haven't looked at the Grant Thornton website, um, you should do so because you can take a look at our regulatory handbook, which we just updated. So that sets out all of the regulatory change initiatives uh, that, that, that we're tracking over the next year. Um, and you'll also find other events, uh, webinars and uh, in-person events, in fact, uh, that we are running. And uh, we very much look forward to seeing you. Uh, in some of those. 